This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. I'm really, really, really excited to introduce Adam. He's joining us all the way from Dallas. Um, we're, we're good buddies. We've been buddies for something like 12 years, and it's really great to be able to bring him out. Um, he's always fabulous, and today he's going to talk to us all about making our deliverables uh, much better, and I'm sure that mine will learn will, will, will be much better as a result of listening to you. Thanks, Adam. I'd like you to consider this piece for a moment. At first glance, it's, uh, it's colorful. It looks kind of fun. Um, to the parents out there, it probably looks like something that belongs on a refrigerator, right? I want you to consider it now. It looks like it's in a gallery wall. That context changes the way we look at things. Now we start to think about composition. We start to think about looking for meaning in something that uh, is, is, seems more important and seems somehow worth investigating a little bit more. And as you're looking at it, you wouldn't know necessarily that this was done by a 30-year-old chimpanzee named Brent. <laughs> True story. So the reason that I do that is that whenever we do our artifacts, when we give stuff over, there's a period of time where style bridges a gap and establishes a tone. That tone says that this looks like something that could be dismissed. Or that tone says this looks like something worth investigating. This looks like something that might be important. So for a brief moment, style is a bridge between uncertainty and substance. Style creates a first impression. It's that space of time between when you get your first look at something and when you learn more about what it actually is. Style's the attention grabber. Style's work is temporary. It only needs to hold your attention long enough for you to want to begin to consider a closer investigation. If it does grab your attention and a closer look doesn't yield any substance, you're going to be pissed off. So, in user experience, we have the stuff we do, and this is not to be reductive, but we got the usual suspects out there. We do wireframes, we do persona, we do journey maps, among a number of other things. We've got portfolios that are full of these very rich, very dense, very complex deliverables, of which we're rightfully proud, because if they did their job, you know, we did the thing we're really here to do, which is to create understanding. And these are the things that have helped us do that. These are the things upon which we've, which we've built a career. Hopefully, we solve problems. So I have a question for you. When you set out to create these artifacts that you do, do you dive straight for your favorite tool? Do you go straight into Adobe Suite or, do, or Sketch App or, or Axure, Visio, or whatever your favorite tool is? Do you go straight there? Or do you ask yourself this question? What's the least I can do to get my message across? 
couple of years ago, I was working on a project for a big fast food chain. And we, my company, sells this lo-fi process that we work on. I'm going to talk a little about that. Um, the client was really into that. They thought it was really cool, and they thought it was really edgy. And the first artifact that I was going to deliver is a brief that is only five or six pages long with whiteboard images for the basic concepts. We call it a concept brief. Some images, some annotation, two, three themes, just to get an idea across to kind of begin to set a direction. Now, my points of contact within the company thought this was the shit. It's awesome. We love this. We love the way you go about this. But in talking about the next steps, I found out that they were going to have to take the stuff on a tour of the executives, executives who were not in the room. So I asked them, are you sure this is going to have the kind of impact that you need when you have to take this stuff on tour? I said, sometimes I have clients who need something a little bit more. And they said, oh, no, not us. I didn't believe them. When I delivered the brief, it was exactly what I led them to expect. It was exactly what they expected. They thought it was great. And then they started kind of cutting their eyes at each other. And I asked if there was a problem. And they said, yeah, we, we, we got to take this to of one particular VP who's historically not had a great imagination. <laughs> could, could this be a little, I don't know, more? I said, sure. I was ready. I had done another version of the document where I substituted the imagery for grayscale, kept it very limited in the color. They were so thrilled. They did take it up the hallway. They did find out that this got the message across pretty well, except with that one exec. And they came back and said, yeah, he just can't seem to get his head around it. And I said, no problem. So I was able to give them something they could work with. We did get the business. We did get, a, we did get an approval. Uh, I'm sorry, the business we had, this wasn't a pitch, but we did get the approval. Um, this might sound like a, like a pitch for high-fidelity work. It's not. It's actually the opposite. By beginning lo-fi, we were able to get a lot of ideas out there. We were able to throw away a lot of things. So the only things we really spent time on were the ones where we really felt like we either felt strongly about the concept or we knew we were getting some traction. Just three concepts. So when it became necessary to ratchet up the fidelity a little bit, it wasn't that hard. It didn't have that much to do because I didn't have that much I had to do it with. And then if I, when I had to go all the way to color, that was just another step. But this is typical of the kind of probing that we'll do with a client to try to get an answer to that question. What's the least I can do to get my message across? Because that's what we're doing. That's what's the name of the game, is we're trying to keep things moving forward. So switching gears a little bit, this is a simplified version of an information transfer diagram. You, probably, you may have seen some, some much more elaborate examples. But when you're delivering your artifacts, you have the thing you're going to deliver. You have the vehicle, in this case, a presentation. It could be in person. You could wind up having to send it. And then there's some point of approval or feedback. 
So the questions that you ask around this at the beginning are what's the goal? What's the problem that we're trying to solve? What is the thing you're trying to address with what you're offering? What exactly are you offering? What's the thing? Are you the one who's going to present, or are you arming up somebody else to go and make that presentation? Is there going to be some kind of a proxy? And is the person who's going to receive this presentation the one who makes the decision, or is that a proxy? All of this results potentially in a level of signal loss. The more elements you have in between you and the endpoint, the more likely you're going to have a level of signal loss. It's unavoidable. But you need to try to manage that signal loss, compensate for it. And person-to-person -person is obviously still the best, uh, the best situation, but it's not always possible. There are some things you can incorporate, and that's what we're going to talk about now. And we're going to talk more specifically about this person. You may not know who this person is. Know your audience. No, well, no shit. <laughs> Y'all have never heard that before. <laughs> Knowing your audience is what we do for a business. What we do, what we do for 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 a business. Um, but here's a way to figure something out beforehand. This is a model that uh, there are lots of learning models out there. This is one. It's called the VAK model, which stands for Visual Auditory Kinesthetic. Um, these are different learning styles. A visually dominant learner absorbs and retains information better when it's presented, uh, for example, as pictures, uh, diagrams, charts. They also respond to shape and sculpture and paintings, uh, things that are very well, visual. Uh, an auditory learner prefers listening to what's being presented. He or she responds best to voices, for example, a lecture or a group discussion. Hearing their own voice saying something back to a presenter is also helpful. And they respond, and this is interesting, to listening, of course, but rhythms and tone. So what kind of document out there do you think that you may not think about it this way, but what kind of document out there do you think has a rhythm and has a tone? A spreadsheet, maybe? Going to be important. Kinesthetic dominant learners prefer, to physical, prefer physical experience. They like to be hands-on. Uh, they like that approach. They like being able to touch and feel an object. And they respond to gestures and body movements and positioning and um, one of the best examples I can think for a lot of us is if you ever watch somebody else show you how to run a piece of software and you're not the one clicking the keys, does any of that stick? For this guy, it's not going to happen. Unless they're stroking the keys, they're, not the one, they're really not going to retain anything. Now, you can determine how a person learns uh, pretty efficiently, but that's not important right now. And here's what I want to show you. Given a large enough sample set, you're going to get a distribution that looks like this. And the interesting thing here is when you bisect or when you, when you divide this space up, you're going to find that the creatives, surprise, live over here. Guess what most of us are? 
to some degree or another, we're all designers. We tend to live somewhere between this visual kinesthetic space. It's not an absolute, but it's mostly true. And the thing you're going to find is that over here is where the business owners live, the product managers, the stakeholders. So what does this tell us? It tells us that it's very possible that the person you're presenting to speaks another language. So how can you know for sure? Now this is where you can reduce signal loss. Can you find out their name, this approver? Can you find out their role in the company? With those two pieces of information, could you check them out on LinkedIn? And if you do that, you can see what they did in university. You can see how they've come up in a company. You can see, begin to get an idea, potentially, of what kinds of things are going to resonate with them. It's a generalization, to be sure. But if you know this, you can push for the kind of a meeting that's going to benefit them. Person to person still best. But what level of detail do you provide? And how do you provide that detail? What's going to go into your artifacts? What kind of artifacts will you present? Okay, do you have handouts? Do you have charts? Do you have spreadsheets? Do you summarize? Do you go deep? Okay, think about the learning styles we talked about. Can you make some broad assumptions about what will resonate with them? Yes, you're absolutely making a generalization. You may wind up talking to a, uh, the, the head of engineering who has the soul of a poet, but more often than not, these folks, run, folks will run true to form. More often than not, you'll be mostly right. So I'm not really telling you to know your audience. What I'm really telling you is hedge your bets. Do some due diligence, spend a little time trying to do what's essentially a little persona exercise to have a better understanding not only of who you're presenting to, but what you should present in order to resonate with them based on where you think they sit on that VAK triangle. So now we know who we're presenting to, and we know what we need to achieve. We've made decisions about how to achieve it. Now fidelity is the question. Fidelity, for our purposes, can be characterized by uh, the amount of digital polish we put into a document, or how close we come to making something look like a finished product. It can also refer to the amount of accuracy your deliverables have in terms of data or, or detail. You could be presenting in person to a product manager, who in turn will have to take this to the chief marketing officer, who you learned started their career as a copywriter. In college, she uh, studied literature and photography. That tells you that she's probably a visual learner. This is where you check your scorecard against what you know. You have a wireframe deck. You'll be presenting in person to this, per to this individual. You've determined she's a visual learner. First impressions are going to weigh very heavily. That's how she gets her perception of things. You also learn from the project manager uh, that she's easily distracted and will often go to the end and start asking questions instead of waiting, and do, waiting to find out the information in due course. 
that tells you she might be pretty smart. Her mind moves faster than the meeting. She might be easily distracted. So excruciating detail in the presentation may not suit. You may need to keep it at a high level, but she's a writer. Detail is important to her. So maybe you need to leave something behind for her that she can go and look at in much detail later, and she will be interested in this when she has the time to sit and digest it. So the decisions you make about fidelity are important, both in the short run and in the long run. I saw this quote a couple of weeks ago. The accessibility of tools is both a great thing and a hindrance. Higher fidelity doesn't make it a better idea. So I used to be uh, the UX director with a big travel company, uh, online travel company. And I had a couple of folks who got so good with the tool Axure that they put together a prototype for the biggest engagement that we had going on. Uh, it was so finished looking and had so much detail that the stakeholders thought it was done. Imagine their surprise when we had to backtrack and tell them, yeah, this is a prototype, it's, it's just smoke and mirrors. So uh, things got kind of ugly. So in my next staff meeting, I handed out a portfolio to every team, everybody on my team with graph paper, Sharpie, and Post-it notes and other goodies like that, and this is what I told them. I won't tell you how, you, how to finish, but I'm absolutely going to tell you how to start. They need to ask that question. What's the least I can do to get the idea across? The process and dealing with the people that you're going to have to deal with may drive up the need for fidelity, and you're going to meet that. But don't begin there. We're going to talk about that. Lo-fi to hi-fi. I mentioned that I, have a co that I work for a company that uh, that's kind of our stock in trade. It's, it's, uh, it's what captures people's interest and imagination. The reason that we do it is because it invites collaboration. We really do want to work with our customers and our clients. One of the first most important aspects of that is something we call working in public. So what is that? So it's, it's simple enough. It's, it just means working in a place where other people can see you working and you, it can invite, uh, uh, invite uh, input from others. When I first joined the company, we have floor-to-ceiling whiteboards all over the place. And I hadn't quite grasped the working in public thing. I was on, at the time, I had actually been brought to the company to work on our largest account, a uh, very large hotelier, a very large hotelier. And we had a presentation coming up, and I was trying to come up with some concepts. And this was me. I went into a room, and there was this pristine whiteboard in there, and I was sitting on a little poof, tuffet, whatever you want to call it. Poof's not the right word here, is it? Um, <laughs> that's a whole other dynamic, isn't it? Um, but I was sitting there all scrunched up with my moleskin in my lap, working on sketches and trying like hell to come up with some ideas, and it just was not working. And the irony was that I was all focused in there with this perfectly clean whiteboard, which is kind of, a, which is kind of a, 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 a premium where I work. It's hard to find a clean whiteboard. Uh, one of my colleagues came in, 
and asked me what I was doing, and I told her. And if she had had a rolled-up newspaper in her hand, she would have hit me with it. She yelled at me. She, what are you doing? Get up! She went over and grabbed a couple of whiteboard markers and threw one at me and said, draw that idea. And so we did, and we started drawing ideas, and we started bouncing these ideas off each other. Other people kind of wandered in and out, and within a couple of hours, we had this wall covered from the floor to as high as we could reach. There must have been bits and pieces of probably 30 or 40 different ideas. As a result, I felt pretty good about the three that we pulled in for the presentation. So working in public is really just about getting other perspectives. Nobody is, is, is immune to cognitive bias. Other people have experiences and capabilities and understandings that you don't have. If you spend the time with them, they're going to add facets to the work that you're doing. Believe it or not, there's less inhibition. When you can start working in this way, it becomes really easy to say, you know what, this is a hideous idea, but I'm going to go ahead and put it up here. Because the risk is really low. You're just trying to get ideas out there, lots of them, and you know you're going to throw them away, a bunch of them. You may find a few little nuggets here or there that you can begin to shape into an idea. But by working publicly like this, and you're out there already, it's, it's really kind of freeing. And most importantly, you just get more ideas. When you dive straight into your favorite, uh, favorite software tool, you have a tendency to self-edit self away from a lot of ideas because you're trying to craft something perfect the first time out. You can't do that. Whether you do it in a sketchbook, whether you do it up on the wall, find a way to work publicly to get a lot of ideas out there because that's the fuel that you need to really come up with good concepts. So a lot of you are saying, but I can't draw. You can draw. I know you can. Because if you can pick up a pen, you can write. And you know how to write, you can make these shapes. This is a visual alphabet. All you need to write is an alphabet and a vocabulary. So this is an alphabet and a vocabulary beginning right here with something that Dave Gray put together. You can see a lot of Dave Gray love in this, app, in this, in this presentation, by the way. Uh, there's a lot of visual alphabets out there, uh, but this is a great one to start with. And if you do get a picture of that, I've got the name. You can go out on Medium and you can see the article with it, that, that I ripped this out of. Um, here's the beginning of a vocabulary. Now, it does take a little practice. When I started working at my current company, I was walking around looking at these wonderful whiteboards that people were doing. And I began my career as, a, as an illustrator, and I still kind of believed that the last skill I still possessed was being a cartoonist, and I was intimidated by these guys. I bought a whiteboard, I bought markers, I took them at home, and I practiced my handwriting, and I practiced until the time came when they needed me to do some more of that work, and I was ready. But it did take a little practice. But if you got a new piece of software, you'd spend time learning how to use that. Well, here's a tool that doesn't have licensing fees, it, it doesn't have updates that you have to worry about. It's a hell of a lot easier to carry around than a laptop. So this, I've been alluding to tools. I've talked about some by name. 
and I get this asked this question all the time, and if you guys do any kind of level of reading, you're always seeing that question coming up in forums. Uh, articles that are responding to this, the top ten tools, the top five list, uh, you know, the listicles of five and six different kinds of top tools. Fuck the listicles. These are your best tools. Your brain and a practiced hand. And by that, I don't just mean sketching. I mean whatever it is you use well. Because when you use those tools, you're not thinking about the tool. You're thinking about what you need to do and the problem that you need to solve. So even though you may still wind up finishing up in Sketch App or finishing up in Illustrator, I still am telling you, you got to start lo-fi to get those ideas and throw them out without risk so that you're not totally invested in them and you're not sheepish about throwing them away. Mashups. So I mentioned the usual suspects. We do wireframes, persona. We have lots of other tools that we... Uh, uh, artifacts that we generate, but don't let yourself be shoehorned into just using those tools, because there's not a recipe for what we do. A recipe is a fixed set of ingredients and a set of instructions, and if you follow those faithfully and you do what's going, what, what it says on the card, most of the time it's, you're going to get the same result, okay? Projects are nothing but a big hairy ball of variables. Everyone is different every time. Every time. I was given a talk a couple of weeks ago about personas uh, where I work, and this is just the mind map that I use to pilot the conversation. But um, as I was talking about them, I was wanting us to kind of think about how we how we've been doing them. I wanted to do something with personas that avoided a lot of the pitfalls that I've got up there, because uh, to be more specific, we do proto-personas, which are less data-driven and more anecdotal. But uh, we've been doing them pretty much the same way for a few years, and it worked well enough. We would um, get the anecdotal information together, and we would sort out into two or three different personas. Um, break up into teams. We do this during our discovery sessions and break up into teams and flesh these out. And we'd say a few things about the people we were designing for, like age and education and income. And since we do mostly native mobile apps, we always worry about which technologies they use. Um, then we try to cobble together a short list of things that goes to uh, specific unique insights, things we can say about them uniquely, basic expectations for an app that we're going to build? What would disappoint them in that app? What would make them really happy? And it's a pretty good exercise. It works well enough, particularly because we, we, we do a good job of staying faithful to these. They don't get stuck in a drawer somewhere. They wind up on the walls of our workspaces, and we refer to them. That's really the goal, I think, of a persona, is to displace, uh, displace the user from being you and maybe a little bit of your mom to being somebody other than that. As that exercise, it worked pretty well. But proto-personas have a real tendency to be kind of two-dimensional and be a little flat and also very judgmental. We judge the hell out of the people that we create personas for. I was working on a, uh, on a, on a, uh, a product of a new vaping device for a tobacco company. And we started doing personas about the people that smoke and the people that vape. And man, were we getting judgmental. 
These were sleeveless t-shirt, flip-flop wearing, gimme hat wearing, good old boy Bubba's driving pickup trucks and panel vans and, and, and cigarettes dangling off their lower lips. I have a lot of friends who smoke and they're not like that. But somehow in the course of this, uh, this persona exercise, they were getting driven that way. So I was wondering, is there something that we could do to be a little less judgmental as we create these and be a little truer? Now, some of you have probably seen this because it's making the rounds right now. I mentioned there's going to be a lot of Dave Gray love here. This is uh, uh, an empathy map that he developed uh, and has recently redone and added some things to it. And so it's making the rounds out there on social media. Um, but I thought, what if we went through an exercise like this as a group around these personas before we begin to start answering questions about them and try to inhabit them a little bit more and think about the world from their point of view. Now, I don't think it necessarily gets us, uh, you know, to, to uh, 100% non-biased, but I think it would do a hell of a lot, a hell of a better job than we're doing now when we build personas. So I've taken two recognizable artifacts and I've slammed them together to create something different. I'm probably not the first person to come up with this one. Different doesn't matter if it works. Don't be afraid to do what suits the situation. Yes, we do wireframes. Yes, we do personas. Yes, we, and, and, and they, they, they work wonderfully for the things that we do. But don't limit yourself to those and don't always take that kit in and try to shoehorn it into every process, project that you do. So, I know it seems like a good idea to try to do documents and presentations that do double duty. You have a presentation that you're going to go and you're going to give and then you're going to leave it all behind and it makes this very nice reference document. Well, it's kind of like a Swiss Army knife that does a lot of things okay, but none of them really, really well. Don't do the document type mashup. Have one for your presentation. Have another one for the appendices and the leave-behinds and the bullet lists and the methodology and the background and all of the detail that may be very important to somebody but not right that moment in that presentation in that meeting. That's too much noise against the signal that you're trying to reduce. So have versions of things. These slides right here have some, multiple, have some builds in them, but I'm going to put it on SlideShare later. I'm going to do another version of this that's static all the way through so that it'll show up right. Probably tweak my speaker notes a little bit so that they translate a little bit better. And that way, when you're using it in that context, it's doing the thing you want it to do. Right now, it's doing the thing I need it to do at the moment. So if anybody's wondering at this point uh, why, I, uh, why I did this all in whiteboard, Partly it was to illustrate the lo-fi techniques that I typically use in the projects that I work on. But it was also to stress the idea that by beginning lo-fi and saving the level of polish that you need or ratcheting that up until you need it, when the situation tells you you need it, you could still do something like this in a forum like this the trick is that there are no accidents. Make it look deliberate. I know we have some cat owners 
in the house. Has anybody ever seen a cat like fall off of anything? A counter or anything like that? And you hear this, you know, you hear this, this bump, 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 and you see them come out from behind the counter like nothing happened. It's all deliberate. I don't make mistakes. Don't apologize. Put stuff to, like this together. It all has to do with how you, how you wrap it up. So this could be the chimpanzee painting on the wall. So just to recap really quickly, ask yourself what's the least that you can do to get your message across. Do a little homework, do a little persona exercise to compensate for signal loss so that you can hedge your bets and put yourself in a better position to be successful when you go in to make a presentation. Choose your fidelity based on the need. You're going to have people who got to see the hamburgers in full color. But don't start that way unless you find out at the very beginning that it ain't going to happen. I took a few tentative steps this direction with this particular, with a particular client because they gave me an indication, but they were swearing that they wanted lo-fi. Lo-fi to hi-fi is about getting ideas out. Working in public gets you other perspectives. Do what suits the situation. Don't just shoehorn the same approach into every project that you do because everyone is going to be different. And then last of all, do it on purpose. Whatever it is you do, do it on purpose. So what it comes down to when we're talking about style, style is a promise, but substance is a promise kept. Do the work, figure out what's needed, and then fucking do that. <laughs> Thank you. How are we doing? Thank you. We do have time for questions. That was really, uh, really interesting. Uh, I have a question about the working in public stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, a few years ago uh, at a UX Australia, someone was giving a presentation about the difference between internal and external thinkers and the idea that there are some people who just can't uh, bring themselves to put their ideas out there for criticism before they're fully formed and other people would much rather throw them against the wall, see what sticks and work that, work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the environment that I often... Uh, surround myself with, we've got a lot of creatives who are a bit of that external thinker type who like to collaborate and tear each other's ideas down and no hard feelings, that sort of stuff, the working public stuff. Right. But we have a hard time bringing in some of the other important voices into that room because they, they seem to be more of that internal type. They, they would much rather stew on a problem for a little while before they say anything. Uh, so their ideas tend to get trampled on when you do these kind of whiteboard ideas because there's no whiteboard left by the time they've got something to doodle. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you got any approaches that can help with that? Absolutely. Um... Uh, granted, where I work right now, this is a very big part of our culture. It's really how we behave. But we do have some folks who really, this is just not their gig. But like you said, they have good ideas, and you want to get those ideas. So really what you're looking for when you're working up there publicly is fuel. Spend a little time, maybe give them the problem to think about. The, the ones who don't want to get up on the whiteboard, give them, give them the opportunity to chew on it a little bit. And, and get their eyes bi- ideas back in an email or a spreadsheet or something like that. And then when, they, when you do hit the whiteboards, bring that along with you. So in, a, in essence, you're taking their learning style and you're giving it a voice in a language that they don't normally speak. So, 
like I said, it's, it's really about the, all the things that fuel ideas. And those can come from documents that the client's given you for requirements. They can come from other people internally who don't necessarily participate in an exercise like this. But you need to get those ideas in there. So get, get the ammunition. Does that, does that answer your question? I am that person, and I hate it when everybody's in there just doing this, and I'm like, you don't even, you don't even, haven't even thought about what you're doing yet. How can you possibly be putting on it? You don't even know what data you're working with. So I just need time and depth mm-hmm. to think and then to come back because I'm going to go take it away, think about it later, figure out, like go right down deep into all the things and come back up and then come back. So yeah. I can... Yeah, it's totally confrontation. I'm getting used to just being part of it, but it's hard. Um, so, yeah, I'm just a different... I'm also on that auditory style. No, I'm there, not, there somehow, are, I'm, somehow I'm not us, but I'm us. There are some little tricks that we do for ourselves that are sort of in between. Not everybody... Like I said, I got there. I wasn't really comfortable with that way of working. But one of the things my boss would do and got me to start doing is he would just walk up to the board and just draw a bunch of squares... And then go back and start just drawing shapes. And there wasn't even necessarily any rhyme or reason to it, but it was just a way to get started. It was just a way to start doing it. It was just a way to start thinking, hey, this maybe is something that might translate into an idea here. And like I said, the vast majority of it gets wiped away and has, and has no bearing, but it's just it's, 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 a, it's a means to an end. Okay. This is a really weird one with the um, VAK. Where do you put musicians? Where do I put musicians? Well, I haven't yet. No, I haven't made that. I haven't made that. Audio based. Maybe it is audio, but I also, when I talk to some musicians, they describe what they do in very visual terms. I know it's kind of weird, isn't it? Kind of so it, I think if, uh, like I said, there are questions that help you sort of assess where you land on that. Um, I don't think musicians probably fall in one category. I think you'd probably see a spread. Uh, and I'm totally guessing. I think the label might just confuse the issue. Because um, tr- it's showing a concept, not a thing. Let me just... I'm not going to let you go all late to afternoon tea. Uh, it's not really a question, but it sounds kind of like what you're talking about involves a bit of flow state, like everyone in the team getting into a flow state so that even if they draw a bunch of stuff up there and it's not quite what... Uh, what's going to be the final product? They're getting their mind into the process of trying out a hundred different things and yeah. critiquing and all that. Like it seems like a part of that isn't even going to be about the thing you're actually trying to design. A part of it will just be getting everyone in the mood. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be the first to tell you that uh, a lot of what I talk- most, in fact, the majority of what I've talked about here, I don't think is necessarily original thinking. I think I've just sort of packaged it up for you. I hope. Uh, things that you've probably seen or, been fam- or be familiar with, and, and I've just sort of pulled them together into place and maybe gave some things names that you didn't have before. So I hope, we, I, hope I accomplished that. This gentleman, I think, had a question. He can ask time? you later on. Okay. I, that's, what, that's what I just told him, because Fair people show. are starting to leak out. So let's wrap it up so that the rest of you can go and have afternoon tea. Um, and we'll be back at... We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.